the guarantee of our resurrection and our future glory. And we wait for that with eager anticipation. Such a joy to lead the people of God in worship, a joy beyond what I deserve. And it sounds even better this morning with a, with a nice building. So what a joy it is for me. It's a wonderful joy to shepherd such a faithful flock. People who love the Lord and love His Word. And it's just a joy that I am so undeserving of. So I'm grateful to be here. Uh, let's open in prayer. After that, we'll dig into the Word of God and consider what we're doing this morning and what the Scripture has to say about it. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for how much You love a people like us. A people who are so wretched in and of ourselves. A people so inherently guilty and sinful and corrupt. A people who have gone astray like sheep. People who have rebelled against You, despised You, dishonored You, spurned Your grace. And yet a people whom You have sovereignly and graciously redeemed for Yourself. A people that You've called out of the world, called into Your kingdom and Your glory. A people whose sins are forgiven because of the work of our Savior. And we're thankful that there indeed is a fountain filled with blood that flows from the wounds of Emmanuel. We're so grateful that our sins are all gone for those who are in Christ, those who are brought into union with Him by faith. All of our sins, past, present, future, all wiped away by the substitutionary work of our Lord and our Savior. And we're just amazed as we contemplate the glory of the Gospel, Lord. We're thankful that You have appointed ordinances in the church that become a visual display of the Gospel. We know about that very vividly. We take the Lord's Supper weekly and Now this morning we get to partake of an ordinance that is not a normal, regular, weekly ordinance, but one that is just so glorious, that of baptism and another wonderful picture of the Gospels displayed there, and we're just so thankful for that. We're thankful for the three people who are going to be baptized today, people who have already been believers, already been following Christ, but now within your providence, today is the day that they'll get to make that publicly visually proclaimed to the church in baptism, and we're excited about that. Lord, we're thankful for Missio Church being so gracious to us, especially in this crazy time that we're living in now with the pandemic and all of these things, and that they graciously allowed us to use their building and and, uh, conduct a baptism. We're just so thankful, Lord, for how you have been gracious to us in so many ways. We're thankful for the resurrection of our Savior, that His resurrection guarantees our resurrection that His resurrection proves Him to be God, proves Him to be a sufficient Savior. And in that Savior, we put our hope. And now as we continue to worship You through the most important part, hearing the Word, we pray for wisdom and understanding as always. We pray that the eyes of our hearts would be open to behold the glory of Christ and that You would help us to know and love Your Word and live our lives for the glory of our Savior. We pray these things to that end. Amen. All right, as you know, we're here for a reason this morning, and so we are going to leave off for a week from our regular study of 1 John. If you're visiting with us, uh, today's going to be a little different. Uh, We ordinarily work through books of the Bible verse by verse, usually just a verse or two or three at a time. We're currently in 1 John. We've been there for several months. But this morning, I figured it would be a good idea to consider the topic of baptism and church membership Perhaps a topic we haven't thought a lot about much lately. Usually, the most services that I've been a part of, the baptism takes place first in the service, before the preaching. But I figured it would be best today to do it after the preaching, uh, to kind of give you some, just a theology 
of what we're doing and why we're doing it. It's very easy for the ordinances of the church to become mundane. Uh, we do this because, well, it's just what Christians do, right? I mean, it's just what they do. They get baptized. They take the Lord's Supper. Uh, but a lot of times, perhaps Christians don't really understand why we're doing this. And I think the Word of God will give us some clarity on that issue this morning. And so that's my hope, is to provide you with biblical clarity on the issue of baptism and church membership, topics that I think go together. COVID-19 has obviously devastated church attendance in our culture. Many churches have closed at some point. Some of them still closed. Many Christians have stopped going to church altogether around the world. But even before the pandemic, even before then, there was this dominant the ideology of this kind of individualistic, um, this individualistic road spirit. This idea that I'm a, I'm a, my own guy. I got my personal relationship with Jesus. You know, I'm an individual who follows Christ. I really don't need the church. I don't need the church. Perhaps you've heard people say things like this: I can be a Christian and not go to church. I don't need the church. I can, you know, listen to sermons on the internet. We're in the 21st century. Get with the times. I can listen to sermons on the internet, gather with my friends for Bible study. I really don't need the local church. And then with baptism, there are many professing Christians who are unbaptized for various reasons. Some of them are unbaptized because perhaps they haven't been instructed correctly in baptism. Others uh, have unique circumstances like our brother Shadrick and hasn't been able to find a church that will conduct a baptism for him. But some people just really aren't converted at all. They're not really willing to follow Christ. It's just a cultural thing to them. They go to church because their parents did. They profess faith in Christ because that's what everyone does in their family. And they don't want to go to hell, get a get out of hell free card, follow Jesus. Kind of the minimal kind of thing. I'll just do just enough to get out of hell. And if salvation is by faith, I'll just believe and that'll be it. So many Christians in our culture don't really take baptism all that serious. But is that really the case? Is it really the case that the local church is not essential? Is it really the case that baptism is not essential? Do we really need the local church? The answer, of course, is yes. We do need the church. Baptism is commanded of us by the Lord. Every Christian is to be a baptized member of a local church. And I think that's obvious to many of us this morning. But again, I just want to bring us some clarity, some biblical clarity on this issue. The issue of baptism and church membership. And to do that, basically what I want to do this morning, is I kind of thought about how I would organize my thoughts. I had so many thoughts. In fact, I'm probably going to go a long time this morning, so I, if you fall asleep, I understand. But uh, this could be a long one. I'm joking. It won't be that long. It won't be that long. But there are a lot of thoughts that I have, and I'm trying to figure out how to organize it, and I thought, how would I do this? And I figured the best way to do it is to ask a series of questions. Ask and answer a series of questions concerning baptism and church membership. And so that's what I'm going to do, four questions in all. I'll give them to you now, and then uh, we'll look at them one by one. So the first question I want to ask, and I want to consider, is uh, what does baptism mean? What does baptism mean? The second question I want to consider is what does church mean? What does church mean? Thirdly, and here are two questions that I want to consider together. What does baptism actually symbolize? What does it symbolize, and how is it connected to local church membership. What does baptism symbolize? And how is it connected to local church membership? And then finally, I want to consider, is church membership even biblical? Is church membership biblical? 
So those are the four questions, and I trust that as we answer those questions, we'll have some clarity on this issue. So, let's consider them one by one. First question, what does baptism mean? What does baptism mean? And I'm not really looking to get into the theology of it yet. We're going to do that in a moment. But right now, I just want to start with a basic definition of the word baptism. The word baptism, our English word, comes from three Greek New Testament words, all of which have the same meaning. They all have the same meaning. The first word to consider is the word baptizo, the verb baptizo. The basic meaning of the word is to dip, to immerse, to submerge, to dip under. That's the basic meaning of the word. And it comes from another root verb, the verb bapto, bapto. And that verb means the same thing. It just means to dip. In fact, the word baptism is not even really a translation. It's a transliteration. Uh, the, the translators kind of made a new word because it was so distinctly Christian. If we were to actually translate baptism, it would be immerse or dip. But the translators have given us the word baptism. It's become a very Christian word. But that word bapto is used four times in the New Testament, and it always is translated dipped in the New Testament. For instance, it's used in Luke chapter 16, verse 24. There we find a rich man in Hades. He's in torment. And listen to what he cries out there. He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip, there's that word, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I'm in agony in this flame. There's the word bapto. It means to dip. It's also used in Revelation chapter 19 with reference to Christ. It says that he has a robe dipped in blood. The word bapto again. The word simply means to dip. And then there's the noun, baptisma. Baptisma. And it just means the same thing. If the New Testament writers wanted to use a word for sprinkling, they could have done that. There is a Greek word for that. This is an F. This word means to dip or immerse. So Christian baptism then is to immerse. It is to immerse someone in water in the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as a public profession of faith and a public identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what baptism means, to immerse. But secondly, now I want to consider what the word church means. The word church. You know, we often just kind of assume that we know what that word means but it's come to take on a different connotation in our, our culture. If you just look up an English dictionary, you'll find that to be true. Think about the way we use the word church today. We talk about things like this. I, I go to church. I go to church. I have my church. I'm going to change churches. This is what I like or don't like about the church, my church. But that's not exactly technical language, biblical language. John MacArthur's right when he says this. This is not your church. This is not your church. It's not my church. It's not even our church. This church is Christ's church, and we are the church. We are the church. If the building was the church, we would be in a different church today. But we're not. This is the same church that we've been for 10 years because we are the church. We are the church. And so let me kind of give you an understanding of the New Testament concept of the word church. The word church translates the Greek word ekklesia. Ecclesia, it's a compound word made up of two words. The word ek, which means called out from, or out from, and the word kaleo, meaning to call out. So the word ecclesia, church, refers then to called out ones. 
called out ones. It referred to a group of people called out of their homes to a public assembly. That's what the word meant in New Testament times. It was an assembly. So the church then is a group of people called out of darkness, called out of sin, called out of Satan's kingdom, and called into God's kingdom. The church is the assembly of the redeemed. It's the assembly of people who've been redeemed by Christ and brought in to His kingdom. That's what the church is. And when we talk about the word church, biblically, theologically, we have to do so in two categories. Biblically, there is what we could call the universal church. The universal church, also known as the invisible church. And then there's what we would call the local church, or the visible church. The universal church is a reference to all believers of every age throughout the entirety of the universe who have been brought into union with Christ by faith and thus constitute this one universal church. This would include saints in heaven, saints on earth, saints from today, saints from hundreds of years ago, the saints of the Reformation, the Great Awakening, Whitfield, Luther, Calvin, me, you, all of us constitute this universal church. In this sense, by the way, there's only one church. There's only one church. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. Not churches, my church. There's one church that Christ is building. It is His universal church. There's one body of Christ. Christ is not a polygamist. He has one bride, one wife, one body, one church, and He is building that church. And it's also called invisible because we do not right now see at any time the entire church, the entire universal church ever gathered together. You can't see that. Because some of us are in heaven, some of us are on earth, some of us are in Africa, some of us are in America. And therefore it's invisible because you never see it visibly gathered together. It is the universal and invisible church. But the scripture also teaches what we call the local church or the visible church. And in that sense there are many churches, many churches. For instance, in, in Galatians chapter 1 verse 2, Paul refers to the churches of Galatia. That's plural. The churches of Galatia. In Romans 16, 16, he refers to all the churches of Christ. All the churches of Christ. So there's one church, and yet there are many churches. How do you get there? Because you have a universal church, and you have local churches. So what is the local church? The local church is a local, visible expression of that universal church. It is a local expression of that one universal church. Christ as King is one such example of that. We're a local body. You can see us visibly gathered together every Lord's Day and throughout other services throughout the week. We are a local expression of that one universal body of Christ. We are an assembly of redeemed people called out of darkness, called out of sin, called out of the world, called into God's kingdom to form His one or form His one body through many visible expressions. We are the local church. Now it's important to realize this, that within the universal church there are no unbelievers. There are no unbelievers in the universal church. The universal church, again, is a reference to all believers of every age, everywhere, who have been, by the work of the Spirit, united to Christ through faith. Saving faith. There are no unbelievers that make up that church. 
The true church, the universal church, the one church, is made up of only true Christians. However, that's not the case with local churches. Unfortunately, within the local church, there are often, at times, unbelievers that make up the membership of local churches. That's unfortunate. It's not ideal, but Jesus warned us that that would happen. He said that the wheat and the tares often grow together in the world, and often they're indistinguishable, because often they grow together in the church. So there are unbelievers at times in the local church, but that's not ideal. The goal of church membership, and we're going to talk about this more later today and perhaps even next week, but the goal of church membership is to distinguish between believers and unbelievers. The goal of church membership is that the membership of our local church would accurately reflect the membership of the universal church. That is to say, our goal is that only true believers would be members of the local church. That's important. It protects the purity of the church, the unity of the church, the honor and glory of Christ, and so forth. And so we want to protect that purity. That's why at Christ is King we have a membership process the way we do. We have a form to fill out. We have a pastoral interview. Hopefully one day in the very near future we'll be implementing again our membership class because we want to make sure that people who become members of our church are true believers. If we allow unbelievers to become a part of the church, we tell them, hey, you're a Christian. That is the church's way of saying, you, we believe that you're a believer, and thus we give them false assurance. We don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. So church membership is very important. Very important. Now, unbelievers, of course, are likely to come into the church. We don't put up a sign that says no unbelievers allowed, but they're not a part of the church. They're not members of the church. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. We want you to hear the word. We want you to hear the gospel. But you're not a part of the church. You need to come to Christ. You need to repent, believe upon the Savior, become a part of the true universal church, and then you can become a part of a local church. But that's the goal. That's the goal. Membership in the local church is a privilege reserved exclusively for true believers. That's what the church is. It's an assembly of redeemed sinners called out of darkness, called into the light of God's kingdom. And there is the universal church and there are many local churches. Now, that's baptism. That's the church. And number three, I want to consider now kind of the theology behind this. What does baptism symbolize and how is it connected to the local church? What does baptism symbolize and how is it connected to the local church? And this is going to be really the heart of our study. We're going to be flipping around a lot of places now. So this is not normal. We usually stick in one passage, but I think today this will be very helpful. So let's start by turning to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. It's the last chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 28. At this point, Jesus has already died. He's already been buried and resurrected. And now he gathers his disciples together. And he gives them what we commonly call the Great Commission. Which is the mission of the church. The church's mission. And I want to read to you starting in verse 16. Matthew chapter 28. Starting in verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee. To the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some were doubtful. 
And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That is our mission. That's the mission of the church. Discipleship. Make disciples. That's the main verb in verse 19. Literally, it could be rendered, disciple the nations. Disciple the nations. That's the goal. To make disciples. But how do we do that? How do we make disciples? That's where the participles in verses 19 and 20 come in. They tell us how to do it. Verse 19. Go therefore. Go therefore. Having gone. That's where it starts. If you're going to make disciples, you have to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We go into the world, we proclaim Christ, we proclaim the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And as people are converted, they become disciples, and then we bring them into the local church. How do we do that? How do we do that? What does he go on to say? Baptize. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They're converted, then you baptize them into the membership of a local church. That's the way it works. And then verse 20 says that the context in which they're to be taught the Word of God is baptism in the local church. You teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. You preach, they're converted, you baptize them into the local church and teach them everything Christ has commanded them. That, of course, takes place best in the local church. And therefore, the mission of God in the world primarily works through the local church. The local church is God's plan, God's purpose, God's vehicle by which He drives His mission. It is the local church. So that's it. You're going to make disciples. The local church is essential. The local church is essential. And baptism is an essential element of the church's mission. Baptism is an essential part of being a disciple and making disciples. And that's why we're doing what we're doing this morning. Now turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. In the book of Acts, Luke gives us a summary of the preaching of the gospel in the early church. And to give you some context... Jesus at this point has ascended to heaven, but before He went, He told the disciples, the apostles, that they were to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Spirit. Then they were to go and in the power of the Spirit be His witnesses. But first they had to wait. They had to wait on the Spirit. And we find them doing that in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church and the Gospel is preached and the church as we know it in the New Testament is born. Acts chapter 2, and I want to read starting... In verse 37, verse 37, Luke writes, Now when they heard this, that is when they heard the gospel from Peter, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? They heard the gospel. Peter confronted them with the fact that they had killed the Messiah. They had killed and rejected God's anointed one, God's Christ. He had presented to them the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died for sinners, was buried, raised to new life. And that one that they rejected, the very one they killed, is Lord of all, he said. Of course, this brought great conviction. They were pierced to the heart, the text says, cut to the quick. 
And they cried out, Brother, what must we do? What do we need to do to be saved? And Peter gives the answer in verse 38. Look at verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's it. Repent. Be baptized. Repentance, turning away from sin to God, that's what brings about the forgiveness. And baptism is closely linked with that because it symbolizes that forgiveness and it is the first initial step of obedience by the new believer. So the believer is to be baptized. And that's exactly what they did. You go to verse 41. It says, So then those who had received His word were baptized... And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Added to what? Added to the church. Added to the church. It's an amazing thing. Peter stands up. By the way, this is the same Peter who denied the Lord three times. Now he's empowered by the Spirit. He tells them, you've killed the Messiah, repent, be baptized. And amazingly, astoundingly, the church grows faster after Christ is dead and resurrected than it did before. 3,000 people are converted. And what do they do? They get baptized and they're added to a group of people. They become an assembly of the redeemed. They're added to the church. And what do we find them doing? Go to verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That's a biblical church. It's a biblical church. Devoting themselves to the Word of God, meeting together, taking the Lord's Supper together, praying together. That is a faithful biblical church church. And that's what they did. This idea today that I'll just kind of give the preacher my hand, give Jesus my heart, and then go home and live my isolated individualistic Christian life is foreign to the New Testament. You don't find it there. It doesn't say the 3,000 were converted and then they just went home. In fact, many of them were actually from out of, the, out of the city. Many of them had come from all over the Roman Empire. And many of them had stayed in Jerusalem to be a part of this only church at the time. This only local church. The church was the center of their Christian life. They were a part of a local church. And entry into that local church was baptism. Baptism. You get baptized and you become a part of the local church. Now go to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. Acts 22. Here we find the Apostle Paul. He's been incarcerated. He's there in Jerusalem. The Jews attack him. And he's arrested by the Roman authorities to stop the mob violence. But then they give him an opportunity to speak. And he does so by giving his testimony and proclaiming the gospel to them. And starting... In verse 12 through verses 16, we find a little bit about baptism here. Look at verse 12. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. He had been blinded. And he says, Receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know His will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from His mouth. For you will be a witness for Him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. Now there are two observations 
about baptism that I want to make here. First of all, notice the timing of baptism. The timing. Ananias says, now why do you delay? Get up and get baptized. You're a disciple, Paul. You're a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus now. Why delay? Get baptized. Get baptized. You don't find in the New Testament this long waiting period. You know, guys having to wait years to be baptized when they're professing Christians. When they make a credible profession of faith, they were baptized into the membership of the local church. That's why we're baptizing Shadrach today, right? He's been a Christian for a year, having trouble getting baptized. Don't why delay? Get up and be baptized. That's why we're doing that, and we are thankful to have that privilege this morning. But the timing of baptism is when you make a credible profession of faith, you are to be baptized. But secondly, notice the symbol of baptism. The symbol of baptism. He says, get up and be baptized, washing away your sins, calling on His name. The symbol of baptism is forgiveness. It's the washing away of sin, cleansing. And we need to note here that Ananias is not asserting the unbiblical heretical doctrine of baptismal regeneration. That's the idea that baptism saves. That's not biblical. That's a false gospel. A damning, heretical, false gospel. Baptism does not save. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Scripture makes that crystal clear. In Romans 4, in fact... Paul makes the argument that all believers are saved just like Abraham. His argument is that Abraham was uncircumcised, and Genesis 15.6 says he was justified by faith. So was Abraham saved by circumcision? No, because he was saved before circumcision, and therefore apart from circumcision. And that he was saved apart from baptism, and if we're saved like Abraham, if we're saved like all saints throughout every age, we're saved by faith alone apart from works, including the work of baptism. So baptism does not produce forgiveness. That's not what Ananias is saying. Forgiveness comes from calling on the name of the Lord in faith. Baptism then symbolizes that forgiveness. It becomes a symbol of that washing and cleansing. To further prove this point, turn with me back to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Acts 8 records for us the church spreading throughout Judea and Samaria. Stephen has just been stoned to death by the Jews. Saul is ravaging the church, arresting men and women and women and throwing them into jail. And so the church scatters throughout Judea and Samaria to flee persecution. And as they do, they go about preaching the Word. Preaching the Word. And people are converted through Stephen, or Philip, sorry. Philip is one such example of a member fleeing and preaching the gospel. People are converted through Philip's preaching. But there's one person in particular that I want us to focus on. Look at verse 9. Acts chapter 8, verse 9. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. So he's a magician, a sorcerer. He's doing magic either literally by the demonic power or he's faking it and he's a very good... He's very good at magic tricks like people are today. Verse 10, And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to Him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. This man is miraculous. He must be a manifestation of the power of God. 
That's what they thought initially. But then a greater power came in to Samaria, and it kind of stole Simon's thunder. Verse 11, And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God, you think, Simon is powerful. Look at the power of the gospel. They believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. They were being baptized, men and women alike. That's what you do. You believe and you get baptized. Verse 13, Even Simon himself believed. Listen carefully. Simon himself believed. And after being baptized... Simon looks like the real deal. He's believed intellectually. He's professed faith in Christ. He's even been baptized. That's more than many Christians today. This guy seems to be the real deal. Simon believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. Philip didn't even have to call him on Sunday and say, Hey, come to church. He was there. He was there. At the very end of verse 13 says, He observed signs and great miracles taking place. And he was astonished. He believed, he's baptized, but he was not converted. He wasn't saved. Watch this. Go down to verse 18. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. You see why Simon became a Christian? He came to Christ for the wrong reasons. Simon was, from my perspective, the first example of a charismatic in the Scripture. He comes to Christ not for Christ, not for salvation. He comes for the miraculous, for the miracles. There's a whole movement like that today. People are wooed to Christianity because of signs and wonders and miracles. Simon becomes an example of that. Verse 19, he says, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Peter was going to perish. Or, Simon was going to perish. Simon was unconverted, unbelieving. His heart was not right with God. Yet he was baptized. Doesn't baptism do it all? The answer is no. Baptism doesn't say, it doesn't guarantee salvation. It's only a symbol of that salvation, which is received by genuine saving faith. So Simon is proof then that baptism does not save. It's only a symbol. There's one more point I want to make from baptism here in Acts chapter 8. I've been saying that baptism is into the membership of a local church. That's how it works. Water baptism ordinarily is the initial phase that brings you into the membership of a local church. But there are exceptions to this. And there's an exception here in Acts chapter 8. Go down to verse 34. Verse 34. We find here the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. He's a eunuch from Africa. He's a worshiper of the God of Israel somehow. He's come to Jerusalem to worship. And on the way back to Ethiopia, he encounters the Gospel and becomes a Christian. Look at verse 34. Actually, it's going to be verse... I want you to look at verse... Verse 34. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me 
Of whom does the prophet say this of himself or of someone else? Philip opened his mouth. Beginning from that scripture, it's Isaiah 53, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Look at that question. What prevents me from being baptized? Well, you, you know, eunuch, you haven't been a Christian long enough. You need to be a Christian a little longer. What, what prevents me from being baptized? There's water. And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Many use this as an example to try to prove that membership in the local church isn't important. I mean, after all, the eunuch wasn't baptized into the membership of a local church. But that's because the eunuch had a unique situation. The eunuch was heading back to Ethiopia. Ethiopia. Verse 27 says he was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning. Returning where? Back to Ethiopia. There were no local churches in Ethiopia. There was no local church for him to be baptized into the membership of. And therefore, there are rare exceptions. But the Ethiopian eunuch is not the rule. He's the exception. Ordinarily, in the New Testament, a Christian becomes a Christian and is baptized into the membership of a local church. And I think today, Shadrach's case kind of becomes one of the exceptions. Shadrach is being baptized here today. He's not, however, being baptized into the membership of our church. Because Shadrach has a unique circumstance. Shadrach lives about an hour and 45 minutes away. He doesn't have the ability to make it here consistently. And so we understand that. He's having trouble finding a church to baptize him where he is. And so, though he's not becoming a member today, we're baptizing him. But it's the exception. It's the exception, not the rule. Ordinarily, baptism is into the membership of a local church. Let me continue to make that point. Go with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. So I want to make the point that baptism, water baptism, ordinarily is into the membership of a local church. Romans chapter 6. Paul has spent the first five chapters explaining the glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's the heart of the gospel. Then he gets to chapter 6. And he begins to drive home the doctrine of sanctification, which is connected to our union with Christ. Romans 6, starting in verse 1. Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Now stop there. Paul says, we have been baptized into Christ. Into Christ. That is to say, we've come into union with Christ. Verse 5 says, we're united with Him. United with Him. Now, what kind of baptism brings us into union with Christ? Is it water baptism? Is that what Paul's talking about here? The answer is no. There's no water in Romans 6. This is not water baptism. 
Listen to what 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13 says. Very important verse to remember. You don't have to turn there. Paul says, For we all, by one Spirit, have been baptized into one body. We all, by one Spirit, have been baptized into one body. How do we get into Christ? How do we get into union with Him in the body, the church? By the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not water. Spirit baptism brings us into union with Christ. Water baptism becomes a symbol of that salvific reality. Christ, by His Spirit, immerses us into union with Himself so that we become a part of His universal church. Water baptism is nothing but a symbol of that. So how then do you get into the universal church? By the baptism of the Spirit. Logically then, how do you get into the membership of the local church? By baptism with water. Baptism with water. The Spirit puts us in the universal church. Water is the symbol that brings us into the membership of the local church. That's the ordinary pattern. Then Paul goes on. Verse 3 again. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death. Verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. The Holy Spirit brings us into a union with Jesus Christ in the church. And in that mystical union, we die with Christ, we're buried with Christ, and we're resurrected to new life with Christ. That is to say, if you're a Christian, the old you, the you you were before you were converted, is dead and gone. You're now a new person, a new creature in Christ. That's why baptism is only to be administered by immersion. Immersion. Not only does the word baptizo mean to immerse, but that's the only way to accurately portray the spiritual reality behind baptism. Think about it. What do you do when you get baptized? We're going to do it in just a moment. Ray and Ashlyn and Shadrach are going to go down into the water. That's death and burial. Then they're going to come up out of the water. That's resurrection with Christ to new life. The only way to accurately symbolize that spiritual reality is water baptism by immersion. So that is what baptism is. It brings you into the membership of the local church, just like spirit baptism brings you into the universal church. It symbolizes forgiveness and cleansing and union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. That's baptism. But now, I want to consider one more question quickly. And the question is, is church membership biblical? Is church membership biblical? Now, perhaps someone would say, you know, of course we're supposed to go to church and meet with the church and attend church, but there's really not any biblical justification for membership and an official membership process. Is that really the case? Is church membership biblical? The answer, I'm convinced, is yes. Let me try to give you a few reasons to believe that. First of all, church discipline implies church membership. Church discipline implies church membership. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Just a few pages to the right of the Bible. And church, members, church discipline implies church membership. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1. There are many 
blessings of being a part of a local church. One blessing is that of accountability. You know people. You're involved in their lives. They can observe your life. You can observe their life. And when we fall into sin, our sin can be dealt with by God's people. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1. Paul says, It's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Paul says, not even pagans do this. This is incest. Either the man is having relations with his mother or his stepmother. Either way, it's gross and it's a violation of the Mosaic law and the moral law of God. Verse 2. Our culture today would say, hey, LGBTQ, right? I mean, what's wrong with that? Just express yourself. I mean, we all get to determine our sexual identity, but the church doesn't allow that. Verse 2. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, much like the LGBT community, instead of celebrating coming out of the closet and homosexual sin, they should be mourning over it. You become arrogant, you haven't mourned, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. That's what the church does. That's what the church does. The church, if it's a biblical church, has to be exclusive. Those who live in unrepentant sin are to be removed from the midst of the church. Verse 3, For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Paul says, I've already judged him. So much for, you know, judge not lest you be judged, Christianity, right? Paul says, I've already made my decision. This guy needs to be removed from the church. Verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, that's when church discipline happens, you assemble together as a church, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I've decided, Paul says, he needs to be removed from the church, kicked out into the realm of Satan in the world, so that hopefully his flesh, his sin is crushed, so that he repents and becomes truly converted. That's the goal of church discipline, by the way, is salvation and restoration. Verse 6, your boasting's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? A little sinful influence will corrupt the whole church. It's got to be dealt with. Verse 7, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover has also been sacrificed. And you go down to verse 11. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, a professing Christian, if he is an immoral person, sexually immoral, covetous, an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. We don't have fellowship meals with those who refuse to repent. They're not welcome in the local church. Because the hope is is that as they're removed from the church, they're brought to repentance. Verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? The answer is yes. Verse 13, But those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So what happens when people are in the church living like unbelievers after multiple warnings? The process, by the way, is delineated in Matthew 18. Jesus says, go to your brother, confront him. If he doesn't repent, take it to two or three, take two or three with you. If he doesn't repent, tell the church. If he doesn't repent, treat him like a Gentile, like an unbeliever. Remove him from the church. That's what you do. You remove him from the church. That implies a belonging. 
Someone belongs to the church. Someone is a part of the church in an official way so that he can actually be officially removed from the church. That demands church membership. Church membership. And how does this process work? Does the pastor just say, you know what, I don't like this guy, we're going to get him out of here. Pastor, just do it all? No. Church discipline happens as a church. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says this. Speaking of church discipline, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment that was inflicted by the majority. So there was an act of punishment, an act of church discipline inflicted upon this sinning church member. And who was it afflicted by? The majority. The majority. That implies a majority vote. That implies that the church gathered together and voted this person out of the membership of the church. Now, who is it that gets the vote? Just anybody that might show up on a Sunday? You know, who knows? Somebody comes in, guy out the streets. We don't know anything about it. Maybe he's an atheist. Maybe he's a Satanist. Who knows? But hey, he's here. Let's just vote. We're all here. No. no. You have to have a way to distinguish between believers and unbelievers. You have to have a way to distinguish between members and non-members. Those who can vote and those who can't vote. And church membership is the process by which we make that distinction. So church discipline and church voting implies church membership. There's many more reasons. Let me just give you one more Submission to biblical authority. Submission to authority implies church membership. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage a group of Jewish professing Christians to hang on, to not go back to the old covenant, don't go back to Judaism, hold fast to Christ. And where do we find the encouragement to continue in the faith. The writer of Hebrews answers that. Starting in verse... Chapter 10, starting in verse 23. Hebrews 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So here we're commanded to meet as a church. And as the day draws near, we make technological advancements. That doesn't negate the need for the church. We need it all the more. We need it all the more to gather together, motivate one another to love and good deeds, and perseverance in the faith. But we need to go beyond just attending. We need to go beyond that. Go to chapter 13. Hebrews 13. So obviously we need to attend church. We don't need to forsake the assembly. To do so is to violate a clear command of Scripture. It is sinful to not be a part of the local church, not attend the local church. But we need to do more than attend. Verse 17. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. For this would be unprofitable for you. He says, obey your leaders. You need to be in a church where you have leaders that are your leader. You can't obey that command if you're just bouncing around from church to church. You can't obey that command if, you don't, if you're not a part of the church. And if you can't obey the command, you're disobeying the command, and therefore it is sinful. It's a clear violation of a clear commandment of Scripture. We are called 
to submit to our leaders, our pastors, our elders, who shepherd us, who keep watch over our souls. And even that implies membership. How can a shepherd watch over a people, give an account on the final day before the Lord, if he doesn't even know who his flock is? That'll make it pretty difficult, huh? The best way for him to know who his flock is, is if we have church membership and an official role of people who belong to that particular church. And therefore, church membership is biblical. It's biblical for many reasons, but church discipline, church voting, and submission to leadership all imply church membership. And next week, I'm going to give you many more reasons for church membership. And next week, we'll also talk about how to identify a biblical church. That way you can identify one when you see it. So you'll have to come back next week for part two if you're visiting with us. You don't want to miss it. But by way of conclusion, baptism means to immerse. To immerse. It's a symbol of spirit baptism, which brings one into the membership of the universal church. So water baptism is entry into the local church. It symbolizes forgiveness, cleansing, union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. It's commanded of all believers, and therefore all believers are to be baptized members of a local church. How about you? Are you a baptized member of a local church? Are you involved in the life of a church? Are you serving a church? Do you have leaders who care for your soul that you can be under their authority and under their care? Do you have a group of believers that you can be held accountable by and hold accountable to yourself? Are you a part of a local church ministering to the body? If not, brothers and sisters, may today be the day you make the commitment to Christ's church. If you're not a believer, that's step one. Repent. Believe upon Christ. He died for sinners. He bore God's wrath. He's your only hope of salvation. By faith in Him, you can become a part of the universal church. Then you become a part of the local church. But if you are a believer, if you've trusted in Christ, you need to be a baptized member of a local church. By the way, Christ is King is not the only good church. There are other good churches in the world. We're not saying you've got to be a part of this church. You become a part, you find a good church, find a biblical church, and become a part of it. Join it. Covenant with it. Live life with those people. And we would love to have you here. I am soon going to put up a sign-up sheet for those who are interested in membership. But if that's you today, if you're interested in becoming a member, come talk with me afterwards and I can help you start that process. But make a commitment to Christ and His church. There is no joy like serving Christ in the context of the local church. May we make that our lifelong commitment for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the clarity of Your Word. We thank You for baptism, this wonderful ordinance. We know what it symbolizes. We know it's a symbol of our union with Christ, a symbol of our forgiveness, a symbol of our being brought into the universal body through the Spirit, and now we're brought into the local body through this water symbol. We're thankful for that. We're thankful for Ray and Ashlyn and Shadrick and their faith in Christ, their love for God, their love for the saints, their desire to be a part of the church, uh, their desire to be baptized, and we're excited to play a little role in their discipleship and their following after Christ. So thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for the saints here this morning. Pray for all of those who are not members of our church. I know some people have unique circumstances. COVID has created a unique circumstance, and we get, we get that. But for those who may have never committed to the local church in any way, we pray that you would motivate them to do so. And, and that you would continue to grow your universal church for your glory. So thank you for these things, we pray. Amen.
All right, if you have